Hey, deserving listeners. I've received many emails from men, and I've talked with many male clients about how to meet women, how to approach women, how to, you know, how to meet women, how to date women. This is a very common frustration for men around the world and around this area anyway, Pacific Northwest. I've had episodes on this topic before, but the other day I received an email that really affected me. It really, it really got to me. It's an email from a dude from the Middle East who moved to the Pacific Northwest to become a therapist like me. He moved here thinking that it would be easy to meet a woman and start a relationship. And he quickly realized that it was much, much more difficult than he originally thought. Well, today I want to dive into his email, which is long and very interesting. And I really want to be thoughtful about a situation rather than just saying something trite, like just be yourself or, you know, stupid stuff like that. I thought I would really try to put myself in his shoes and, and really wrestle with the place that he's at. And the email gets a little out there sometimes. And, and I'm not going to pull any punches with him. If, if, if you, the emailer, because I'm guessing you'll listen to this, if you want me to be helpful to you, I'm going to have to be real honest with you. And you say some things in this email that are concerning. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm not going to pull any punches. Not because I want to hurt your feelings or to, to alienate you at all, but I, I just really want to point out the sort of uh, dangerousness of some of the cognitive roads that you're going down. Now, much of what you're saying in this email is just completely expected, given the situation. But there's a couple things that I'm really going to react to. And um, the thing that I want to say up front is that I, I'm saying, I'm approaching this email as if you were my friend. You know, if, if my, my good friend came to me and said all these things to me, what would I say as a friend as a fellow man, as a therapist, what would I, what would I say? And um, in that way, I'm not going to be necessarily polite and I'm not necessarily going to be, uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm thinking. Now, this isn't to say that everything I'm going to say is brilliant or, or, you know, relevant or helpful, but uh, I feel like this email deserves the kind of candor that it presents. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about, I think, I think I'm what I'm going to name this episode. I was trying to figure out what I was going to name this episode. And I was thinking maybe, maybe I would name it how to meet women, which is kind of an ironic uh, title, how to meet women and something about destructive masculinity or something, how to meet, how to meet women within the lie of masculinity or something. I don't know, something, something really catchy like that. Anyway, this is the psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. All right, let's get into this, to this patron email. Hi, Dr. Honda. Uh, Oh, and by the way, before I move forward, if you, if you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. By becoming a patron of the podcast, you will get access to all of our 
premium episodes and you also get access to our premium feed that doesn't have any commercials or anything. And so if you could do that, that would be fantastic. Okay. Patron. And also when you're a patron, your emails get read a lot more readily. So this is a patron. Hi, Dr. Honda. I would like to hear you talk about a situation I faced when I came to America. I'm from the Middle East. I moved to America a year and a half ago to study psychology and to become a therapist in the future. The situation I soon faced once I moved here is the weird dynamic between males and females here. I'm a 21-year-old male, by the way. We've been taught a lot of stuff in schools, but no one ever teaches you how to interact or attract women, even though it's such an important part of your development. Okay, just just chiming in here. Yes, I, uh, for the most part, agree with what you're saying, Patron. You are saying that in our schools, we, we don't talk about social skills, which, and, and there's some talk in schools about social skills, but not clearly enough. I mean, when I just think about it, it's like, you know, how, how, much, how many hours of time do you spend learning math, you know, mathematics, for instance? Now, mathematics is important. You know, it's, it's an important skill or knowledge. But in comparison to social skills, let's just sort of match it up. How important would you say social skills are in relation to mathematics? I would say social skills and, you know, personal well-being skills, psychological skills, coping skills are, let's just say, a billion times more important than mathematics and yet, in our schools, we don't talk about it at all. I mean, what's the point of school anyway? Is it just to teach these, these particular skills, or is it supposed to help you with the rest of your life? Well, if it's supposed to help you with the rest of your life, then social skills, coping skills should absolutely be in there, right? But it is not, because our society is fucked. But there you go. Okay, back to his email. And if we can't attract women... It can lead to a serious psychological issue such as self-esteem issues or turning you into a violent person, etc. Okay, just chiming in here. This is getting a little concerning. You're talking about, uh, you know, self-esteem, which is totally, you know, normal and, and reasonable to say that having troubles with dating would lead to self-esteem issues for sure. I mean, even having success with dating leads to self-esteem issues. But, but then you say, uh, if we can't attract women, it can lead to turning you into a violent person. A violent person? Like, there's no reason for any of that kind of talk. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I understand feeling hurt. I understand seeking support. But converting the pain of your loneliness into violence is definitely not a foregone conclusion. It might be something that you might be talking with other people about, maybe online, but that is not that is not a, a what I would call a typical response to having difficulties with dating, especially at the age of 24. I mean, you're young. Believe me, uh, there's not a lot of 24-year-olds that would say, I am a successful dater. <laughs> there's just not a lot of that. So... You know, but let's move on. Okay. Again, like I said earlier to you, patron, I wasn't going to pull any punches. And I hope you know that when I'm uh, joking around, it's in a friendly manner. I'm not ridiculing you. It's just 
Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be straight with you as if you were a friend of mine or a cousin or something like that. Okay. Back to your email. Now, I know that this topic might sound silly, but trust me when I tell you that I would sacrifice anything just to get that secure attachment with someone I care about. Okay, just chiming in here. Yes, 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 a thousand times. Yes, you are wise to say that. You want a secure attachment with someone you care about. That is important to remember as we move forward with this email. This is what you said, which I would imagine to be true for everybody. You're looking to share your life with someone, someone who loves you, someone who, who you can, who, who loves you back, you know? Um, yeah, I had this song that, that talks about this conundrum of dating and looking for an attachment. And, uh, I just thought I would read the lyrics from this song that, uh, from Bread Knife Incident, my the band that I'm in. I'm in a band. It's no big deal. I'm super cool. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a song called Cowboy. And uh, I don't know. I've always just sort of liked these lyrics because to me, it really encapsulates, I think, a, a common experience for men in, when they're trying to meet people, essentially trying to meet either other men or other women, depending on their romantic inclination. Okay. Cowboy feeling right. So it's basically just about a cowboy, but not a cowboy cowboy, but like maybe just say like, I don't know, just it's, it's poetry. I'm not a poet. I'm, I'm a, I'm not a lyricist. I'm, (laughs) but anyway, okay. Stop. Just read the lyrics, Kirk. Okay. Cowboy feeling right. Riding down the freeway at night and hoping to fall in love. Cowboy thinking back, wondering how long he has to wait to hold a hand that squeezes back. Cowboy drinking right, standing in the corner to watch the floor that she will dance on too. Cowboy staring down into the ice in his hand. He'll never, no, he'll never understand. Where did he go wrong? Is it only moments he feels or has she just moved along? Where did he go wrong? How have all the years gone by with no one there to ask him why? Cowboy fallen down. Even booze will never forget he once had fell in love. Cowboy walks alone. He sees a lady of the night. She asks him to take her home. Where did he go wrong? Is it only moments he feels or has she just moved along? Where did he go wrong? How have all the years gone by with no one there to ask him why? Why won't she hold hands and in time make plans? Why won't she hold hands and in time make plans? So again, I'm not a lyricist or a poet, but I find that the, that song just sort of encapsulates that feeling of, you know, men going out at night trying to meet somebody uh, going to a dance club because, you know, a meat market, if you will, getting a drink, hoping that someone walks onto the dance floor and that everything will happen wonderfully. It it doesn't go well. He goes home, he gets a sex worker <laughs> and, and he's still sad. And he, all I can think about is what went wrong and why won't, how come I can't find someone to hold my hand? 
and someone to make plans with me. I just want someone to hold my hand and someone that will make plans with me for the weekend or for next month or just someone, you know? Anyway. Okay. So back to you, patron. I just want to tell you that this longing for a secure attachment is universal. I mean, think about all the songs, including my dumb song that I wrote. I mean, there's so many songs that talk about this longing for secure attachment. So you are wise and healthy to identify that that's what you want. You want a secure attachment. We all want that, and we all struggle to get it. If getting a girlfriend was easy, there wouldn't be any art or any music or any poetry or or any anything <laughs> it, it, it that tension of of will I get romance in my life? Will I get an attachment? Will anyone love me? This is what drives the entire artistic endeavor of our species. And I, I really want you to know that. So so every everything depends on the narrative you tell yourself about the struggle. Because the struggle is real. You're struggling with it, as does everybody. But is this struggle, are you going to tell yourself the narrative that this struggle is meaningless and unfair? Are you, are you going to say, this is a meaningless, unfair, bullshit struggle that I'm going through? Or... Is this struggle the essence of life? Is this struggle what makes the world go round? Is this struggle what makes it all worth it in the end when you do find that one person? Th- these are the questions you need to answer for yourself because your narrative about your situation is extremely crucial to what your life will end up being like. And we'll get more into that later. Okay, back to your email here. When I came to the United States, I realized that it's just like back in my country and that men have to make the first move. And you have no idea how angry that makes me feel. Women just sit around judging guys who approach them and they don't have to do anything we do, such as approaching the person and saying the first sentence, planning the date, trying to prove to the girl that you're not threatening and even turning the conversation into a sexual conversation. We men have to do everything. And I mean, what the hell? Sometimes I think that girls don't realize that men have an ego too. And they don't understand how painful it is to approach a girl you like to just get immediately shut down by her after just saying hi. I don't understand why they make it so hard on us. So I now think it's just better to be gay and ignore women completely. Okay, so chiming in here. By the way, to the listeners out there, I saw a picture of this guy, and I just want to say he's a good-looking dude. I just want to put that out there. I don't know if that's relevant to anybody, but if you're trying to picture this patron emailer in your mind, picture, uh, you know, I would say a a very good-looking guy. Okay, so... Patron who's emailing me. Yes, you are seeing the strangeness of our culture regarding gender. You are seeing it, and it looks weird to you. It should bother you. It's bothering you. To put men and women into these little masculine and feminine boxes and only certain behaviors are allowed, this, you know, this should bother you. But this isn't women's fault. It's not like women's wake up. It's not like women. It's not like women wake up in the morning, morning and say, let's all 
be feminine now. <laughs> you know, they're socialized to be this way. It's our culture's fault. If, if a woman is forward in our culture in general, they are labeled as a slut or a bitch or something else bad. I mean, how do you think women feel? They probably don't like the fact that they can't choose who to talk to in our culture. They might like a guy. They might see a guy from across the room or even know a guy as a friend. And they, they have to send all these vague signals to get him to, t- to come over and talk to her. And this doesn't always work. You know, I've talked to many women and they'll say, yeah, I was giving all these signals and he never came over and talked to me. And I feel really bad about myself and I'm not an attractive person. I'm, I'm too fat or, you know, my nose is too big or my hair looks funny or something. You know, this is not just a problem for men, <laughs> believe me. And, you know, but just to be clear, not all women act this way. There's plenty of forward women that will just walk up to men and, and talk to them. But I hope you get my point. It's, it's not women's fault. It's society's fault. And you seem to be thinking that it's women's fault. But yes, many women are socialized to believe that men do not have an ego, that they, that they can't be hurt. We've all been taught, both men and women, that men are strong and don't have emotions other than anger. You know, men have anger, but they don't have anything else. And yes, some women are going to hurt your feelings and be surprised that you have feelings. This is not their fault. They've just been tricked by centuries upon centuries of culture that said that men are superior and they don't have any weaknesses and they don't have any feelings. Now, this, not, this isn't to say that women are allowed to have their feelings. They're just allowed a little bit more to have their feelings than men are. Women are also denied to have their feelings, but just not as much as men are. Men are extremely denied their own emotionality. And the more I think about this, and the more I talk with other people about this, the more I think that 99.9% of our problems in our society have to do with this masculinity problem. The fact that we make all men have to deny all of their weaknesses, so to speak, that's not weak. It's just human to have feelings. You know, the, the more we deny men this, the more domestic violence you have, the more, the more general violence you have, the more pain, the more depression, the more anxiety, the more loneliness, the more wars you have, the more political problems you have. I mean, everything becomes worse when men, when anyone, when anyone is denied their basic human need of attachment and love. And the only way you can get attachment and love is if you identify yourself as needing attachment and love. And as, and as soon as you identify that you need it, then you need to be able to ask for it and request it from other people. And these are, in our society, these are seen as weak and vulnerable things. And so you have all these people walking around who are deprived of a basic human need. And guess what? They get pissed off <laughs> and they, they, you know, they sublimate their issues into all these other problems and they convert it. And, you know, so anyway. All right. So again, let's get back to the narrative here. What narrative are you going to tell yourself when you have these experiences? Are you going to tell yourself the story that women don't care about your feelings are you going to tell yourself the narrative that women are evil? Or are you going to tell yourself that they are merely exhibiting their socialization and it's up to us men to help them understand that we can be hurt too, just as easily as they can be hurt? Are you going to tell yourself that it's pointless and you should just give up on the whole thing and just, you know, derive a 
destructive narrative that women are evil? Is that what you want to do? Or are you going to tell yourself that things take time and finding the right match takes a lot of time? It's really up to you that everything depends on that narrative you tell yourself. And I'll get more into what might help with this narrative issue in the, in a bit, but, but that's an important thing to know. And if you were my friend, this is what I'd be telling you. If you were my client, this is what I'd be telling you. If you were me, this is what I'd be telling me. <laughs> I, let me just tell you a story that yeah, from my own life. When I was in, that's relevant to this, hopefully. When I was in middle school, I was going through a tough time, similar to what you're going through. I was hurt and I was feeling lonely. And I didn't see any way out of it. I was very pessimistic. I just thought, well, this is my life now. I'm, I'm never going to get out of this. And a mentor of mine, a very important mentor of mine in middle school, he told me, Kirk, it's all about expectations. If you expect things to go a certain way and they don't go a certain way, then you're going to be extremely unhappy. But if you're open to, and you expect a variety of possibilities happening, then you're not going to be as, you're not going to be as upset. Now, this of course is a very uh, simple idea, but when I was 12 or 13, this blew my mind. (laughs) The fact that, that my expectations would dictate how much I would suffer later on. So patron, if you expect a certain thing and it doesn't happen, then yeah, it's going, it's, it's going to be hurtful. It's, it's the same when we watch sports. You know, I'm watching the Huskies. They won the other night and Seahawks, they won the other day. And I always tell myself before I watch these games, look, there's a, you know, a 20 to, I don't know, whatever percentage chance that this game is not going to go my way. They're going to lose. Now, if I expect them to win, then the only thing that can happen is they can either win and my expectations are met or they will lose and I will be devastated. But if I expect them to either win or lose, and I hope that they win, then if they win, that's a bonus. I'm like, hey, they won. That's great. And if they lose, then again, I, I sort of expected that. So you have to think about your expectations and how that drives your narratives. And I don't know if that's helpful to you. I'm not in a back and forth conversation with you about this. So I'm just throwing that out there. When I was going through a tough time related to what you're going through, that whole expectation philosophy was extremely liberating to me. Okay. Another thing I want to talk about with you, patron, has to do with acculturation. We cannot ignore the fact that you have moved from a vastly different culture into this vastly different culture. You know, you've moved from the Middle East to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, people in the United States don't, in other parts of the United States, like the East Coast or the South, they don't understand people in the Pacific Northwest. When someone from Miami moves to Seattle or you know, somewhere up here, Tacoma or Portland or Vancouver or something, Vancouver, Washington, that is, they will always say, man, the people up here are weird. 
I don't get these people. And they will also say dating up here is hard. They will, they will say that. Now, as someone who's born and raised here, I can tell you that it's not like we're the strange ones. It's just a different culture. You know, people, when they move to, I mean, just let me just, just let me just say this. <laughs> Imagine some random 24 year old guy in Seattle moves to the Middle East, you know, to Jordan or Syria or Jerusalem or uh, is that the Middle East? <laughs> I don't know what's considered exactly the Middle East, but you know what I'm saying? Moves out there and expects to date the way that he dated back in his home country. You're, you're guessing that's not going to go well. You know, it, it takes a long time to understand the people and understand the culture, understand the nuances, understand the, what's written between the lines, how to meet people, how to approach people, how to date. These are extremely complicated cultural activities that people don't even understand in their own culture, let alone another culture. So, you know, it's just important to take, to, to keep that in mind that you're running into some struggle and the cultural difference cannot be ignored. And so therefore you should really, again, lower your expectations on being able to pick up on the nuances of dating so that you can date successfully. It's just not, again, it's hard for people born in Seattle, let alone those who aren't from the culture, even other cultures in the United States. Okay. Plus I'm guessing that you thought this is purely a guess. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that you thought that women in the U S were extremely quote unquote easy, you know, that, you know, I, I've heard this from people overseas. They'll, you know, they'll talk about basically that it's easy to get laid in the United States. It, you know, that American girls are, are very easy to have sex with or they're, you know, that the sexual attitudes in the United States are extremely liberal. Well, it's, it's a really more nuanced than that. And um, I don't know if this is a factor, but it's worth considering. You know, think about what was your expectation of American women before you moved here? Um, and think about, you know, perhaps the distortions and how that might have affected your narrative and your expectations. Having said all that, many native-born Americans will email me saying very similar things to what you're saying. So it's not as if culture is necessarily an issue. You know, like if I read your email and you didn't say you're from the Middle East, I would have figured that you were, you know, just a, a regular American guy because I get a lot of emails from regular American guys saying the exact same thing. So anyway, okay, back to your email. I think that people should be encouraged to date and have sex way more often than they do now. I think America still has sex shaming, which makes girls closed to men. Can you believe that it's much simpler to have sex with women in my country than it is here, even though dating is illegal in my country? Okay, just me chiming in here. Dating is illegal in your country? Holy crap. Really? I think I've heard stuff like that, but illegal? <laughs> I mean, I knew other cultures had different practices, but man, illegal. Dating is illegal. Man, what does that? Anyway. 
Yes, America is massively sex shaming. We we have a massive culture of sex shame. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it sounds like you're surprised by that. Being from the Middle East, you're like, oh, America, it's just... It's this wide open country. Everyone's open to sex. Well, I'm here to tell you, and no, 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 no. We are, we are, we were founded on puritanical, the most puritanical Christians on the planet <laughs> at the time, or some of the most, some of the most straight laced people on the planet were the founders of our country. And there's a through line of that culture uh, up until today. I mean, when you look at, sexual attitudes of other countries, you'll see that on the spectrum, the United States is definitely not on the liberal end of the spectrum. It's more in the middle. And so you're very smart to have seen that. But that doesn't prevent people from developing secure attachments. I'm going to keep bringing it back to that. Yes, uh, Americans, uh, you know, sexually shame people and women. And this makes it this complicates dating uh, in some ways, but this doesn't prevent, you know, the vast majority of people in the United States from developing secure attachments. So I just want to put that out there. It just means that it's probably a little harder to have a one night stand or to have random sex. It, it probably makes it a little harder to do that, but, but it doesn't prevent people from having secure attachments. Also, I'm guessing it's easier for you to have sex in your home country because you understand the nuances of your home culture much better than you understand a foreign culture uh, regarding sex. I mean, sex is weird anyway. I can't imagine, uh, you know, trying to move to another country and figure out the sexual culture of, of a, uh, in another society. So anyway, just a thought. Okay, back to your email. Lastly... Please, for the love of God, don't tell me just to be myself. There is nothing more hurtful to hear for a confused man than those words. It's just like if I told you that the best way to defeat your anxiety is to just relax. It will just make me angrier. Okay, I'll chime in here. Yeah, I get it. And I might have been guilty of that in other podcasts. Just be yourself. I mean, it's it's not bad advice. It's just it's just bad advice if that's the only thing you say for the most part, or if it's or if that's the advice you give to someone in your shoes. Because I think what you're dealing with is something more deeper and more profound than just just be yourself. I think that um, plus it's hard to know how how people will take just be yourself, you know. Um, but yeah, I can absolutely see how that would make you angry, and I and I could see how a lot of the advice that people give in person or on the internet or even in therapy. I don't know if you're in therapy. I hope you're in therapy, but I, I could see, and I know that a lot of people get, tend to give extremely simplistic advice about this sort of stuff. And that's why I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about your email and really wanted to uh, try to get to the heart of the matter rather than just providing like the normal tips that you'll, you'll get on the internet because it's way more complicated than quote-unquote just being yourself. Okay, back to your email. Anyway, I would love to hear your opinion about this subject. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and believe it or not, you have followers even in the Middle East. 
Well, thank you very much. Just chiming in here. Thanks very much, Patient. I actually, did I know we had listeners in the Middle East? I I don't know if I did. So that's that's really nice to hear. Okay, so I emailed the patron back and I asked him to please elaborate on his situation so that I could get a better picture of what we're looking at. Because based on his first email, I couldn't really tell what the problem was. It sounded generally like I could probably get my teeth into it, but I wanted him to give me some examples, which he did. And so here we go. And this is his email. I will start with when I first came to America. I hated how religious my country and my culture were, and I couldn't be happier to move to an open-minded country like the United States. I came here believing that people my age are able to have fun with each other without worrying about being judged, whether by God or by other people. I thought that it would be easy to take a girl on a date or to have sex with her because obviously girls enjoy sex too. Little did I know how hard it would be. At first, I decided to play nicely. I thought if girls see that you're, a, that you're very nice and very respectful, they will appreciate that. And hopefully those girls will choose you over the other boys who clearly only think about themselves and about their own satisfaction. Man, was I so optimistic back then. I think that I had placed too much faith in the human intelligence and in their ability to make wise decisions for themselves back then. Okay, I'll just chime in here, and I will say, whoa, 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 slow your horses. <laughs> Again, remember, uh, I said I would talk to you as if you were a friend of mine, and if a friend of mine said something like that, I the, <laughs> the first thing I would say would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You said... You know, I, so so from what I can tell, you're having difficulty, uh, you know, dating or having sex with women, and you're saying that you had placed too much faith in the intelligence of women and their and in their ability to make wise decisions. I just so because you were rejected by women, you're equating that as women can't make wise decisions. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying. You know, I can't, it's not ex super explicit, but it seems pretty clear to me that that's what you're saying. You're basically saying women won't have sex with me, they won't date me, and therefore they can't, they're incapable of making wise decisions. All women are incapable of make, making wise decisions. If this is what you're saying, which I'm not sure if that's what you're saying, then this indicates a massively sexist attitude that is not not only it's not accurate, but it's not going to serve you very well in a number of ways. Um, I get, I get, I get that you feel rejected. I get that you're lonely. I get that. You're, you're a healthy dude for reaching out for help on, on the internet by emailing me. But if you decide to convert that loneliness into misogyny, that's only going to make matters worse. I feel like based on your email uh, so far, and actually, as we read on, I, I feel like you're on the precipice of becoming one of those guys on the internet who drives me crazy. You know, one of those MGTOW dudes who who accuse me of being a mangina all the time. I, I want I want to do everything I can to pull you back away from the ledge, back away from the dark side of the force. 
I'm telling you, it's, it's much nicer if away from that ledge. And it's much less lonely away from that ledge. And you're just going to have to trust me on that. Again, I'm not going to pull any punches. You're saying some things that I'm, I'm deeply worried about you about. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you straight. You seem like a nice guy. We've emailed back and forth. I could, I could imagine you being one of my friends. But you, you've got an issue here that if you don't address it, uh, I, I can see a, a number of bad things happening for you and, frankly, for others. Okay. So going on with your email. One girl used to send me a lot of admiration signals. She smiled every time she talked with me, and her eyes opened wide out of happiness. She also used to dance with me in a very touchy way, like putting her thigh between my legs and so on. So I decided to ask her nicely on a date, and she said yes. However, two days before the date we planned, she canceled it, and you could tell that her excuse was just a lie. Later in the term, I found out that she did the same moves with four other guys, and she left them all the second they asked her on a date. And so I realized that she did all of that just to get attention from us, and perhaps to some satisfaction, and perhaps to feel some satisfaction on turning all of these guys down. Okay, I'll chime in here. Yeah, uh, from if I'm to believe your dis- description as being accurate, this is someone that is probably trying to get attention. Now, this is a rare thing in women, I'm telling you. Uh, I mean, everyone likes attention, men and women, but this sort of behavior, if I'm to believe your story as being accurate, which, you know, sounds credible, is, um, yeah, uh, some people, including women, will use what they get to, what they have to get attention in whatever way they can. And this is what we call in the business histrionic. We've I did a long, long three and a half, four hour episode on histrionic and hysteria. And I won't go into the details. It's a Patreon only episode. And I don't know if it's coming out before or after this episode, but I just did all that. So all that's in my head. And there, you know, so there are people who are deprived of, of attention when they're children, men and women, boys and girls. And when they grow up, they will have this complex regarding attention and, and they'll, they'll be stuck in an earlier developmental phase in which they are in a constant uh, a sort of cycle of trying to get attention from other people, quick attention. You know, when you're three years old, you don't wait around to get attention from someone. You just walk up, you just, you know, say your, your uncle comes over and you want attention from him, you don't, you, don't, you don't wait around for him to approach you. You just walk up to him and like smash into him or throw a ball at his face. Or, you, know, you, just, you just want to interact, and that's, what, that's the way kids do it because they're so desperate for attention. They need attention a lot, uh, and that's normal because that's the developmental phase that they're in. Well, if you deny a child that attention at that age, and particularly if you only give them attention through through being cute or the way they look or even like pseudo sexuality when they're, when they're young, then they end up, they grow up to be in this cycle of constantly trying to get that sort of attention from other people. 
and but they feel empty on the inside and it doesn't ever really cure them of their attention of their attention needs because it's all sort of empty. And so, you know, this person that you described could be one of those people. Hard to tell. I'm not going to diagnose this person, but you know, there there are people out there like that. But the other thing is is that you're young. You're 24 and if you're hanging out with other young people, I'm telling you there's there's it gets better when you get older. <laughs> You know, 20, when I was young, when I was a teenager, I thought 24 was ancient. And then when I became 24, I realized 24 is basically just kind of like 19 or even 17 in some ways. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're meeting people and they seem to treat dating in a frivolous manner, it, that's just kind of par for the course for young people. Not that young people are frivolous, but it's just, you know, it's, it's not a huge priority for young people to, have a long-term relationship, shall we say. And so, you know, I'll say that too. The other thing I'll say is if this is the uh, someone that you decided to pursue, you, you have to be careful about who you pursue romantically and sexually. Her, her initial behavior on the dance floor in particular is a sign that something was amiss. You know, she, she, you're, you're not dating her yet, apparently, and she's already grinding up on your business. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, people can dance however they want to dance. But someone who grinds up on your business and you're not involved with them yet, that should be kind of a red flag. Like, look, she doesn't even, she doesn't even know me that well. And, uh, and she's already grinding up on my business. I wonder what kind of person this is not not that not to slut shame or anything like that but i I wonder how uh how much of a priority it is to her to be in a secure attachment before doing these sorts of things you know you just have to you just have to wonder um also again getting back to the narrative uh, of what you're seeing you know you you meet this woman you you talk with her, uh, you you smile at each other, you have good conversations, you go to a dance club, and she likes to get up in your business, but she's not interested in dating you, okay? So there's a number of different narratives here. One narrative is that she's an evil bitch, and that she's she wakes up in the morning and says, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to humiliate men today. You know, that's one narrative. I don't, I don't think that's accurate, but that, that's one narrative. Another narrative is that she's a fun person to talk to and she's a fun person to dance with, but she's not interested in looking for a boyfriend or for someone to date. And, and she's a fun person. She, she's a fun person for what she's fun to do with. You know, she's, she's fun to talk to. She's fun to smile with or even flirt with. She's fun to dance with on the dance floor but she's not someone that I'm going to be a boyfriend, girlfriend with. And she might not even be someone that I am romantically, you know, attached to in any sort of way. So there's, there's a way to narrativize is a word that I like to say the situation in a way that is helpful. And there's a way to narrativize a situation that is extremely destructive. And you have a theme in your email of narrativizing your life in a very destructive way. I, I imagine it has to do with you having been neglected or mistreated or rejected or abandoned as a child yourself. I, 
you you didn't indicate a single uh, uh, piece of evidence in that direction. But in my experience, and this is just, you know, cliche for a therapist to say, but I'm telling you, when I talk with guys in your shoes, and I've talked with many, there is almost always an element of traumatic relational rejection at some point in their life, whether that was a parent or their first romantic partner or a sibling or something, but something that was profound. Because when you become traumatized, and it's real trauma, it's not just like, oh, you know, uh, divorce, you know, isn't that normal? No, divorce can be traumatic for kids. When you're a kid, just taking divorce, for example, when you're a kid, your entire emotional stability depends on your parents, your well-being, your practical well-being, you know, because they drive you around, they pay for everything, they feed you, they clothe you. So not only your practical needs, but all of your emotional needs rely on your parents. You can't go anywhere else. You, the, you can't say, I'll, you know, I'll go down the street and get my attachment needs from you know, some other person. Now, some people have grandparents, and they can actually be a saving grace to this, but a lot of people don't. It's just like it's your parents. And in a divorce, these can be, you know, quite ugly. Plus, even if everything goes extremely well in the divorce, when you see your parents rejecting each other, this is threatening to you because you say to yourself, if my dad can reject my mom and my mom can reject my dad, then both of them might reject me. I thought they were going to be together forever, and yet they rejected each other. That means I can't depend on anybody. And so even on a, in a good divorce, one that's amicable, that is challenging to a child's attachment narratives and their, and their you know, stability emotionally. But what I'm guessing, patron, is that you experience something, something profound uh, maybe an abandonment, maybe a parent that worked a lot, maybe alcoholism, substance abuse from the Middle East. So I'm guessing war, you know, maybe, maybe people died. Uh, maybe there's a lot of political strife. I don't know. But that's typically what I find. Uh, just as an example, I once worked with someone for a number of years that had almost the exact same issue. And he, his dad had abandoned him. And so he just grew up with his mom. And, you know, if you tell the story to, you know, average person, it's like, oh, yeah, my dad, he wasn't really around that much. But, you know, me and my mom, we were okay. But when I started looking into it more, his mom also was very critical and very cold. And so this person grew up in a very cold and rejecting and abandoning environment. And as a result, had extreme sensitivity, very natural to do this, extreme sensitivity to rejection from other, from women, from romantic, you know, partners. And he would be very hurt and he'd be very angry and he would convert all that into, uh, you know, rejection of women in general and to narrativizing a situation in a very destructive way. And so, um, anyway, let's get back to email. The second girl I, I, I asked out, I went to her and told her that I'm going to a fun place that weekend if, if she wanted to join us. At, at first she said yes, but without a lot of excitement. And I knew if I let things go the way that they are, she wouldn't come. 
and my friend advised me to do a little psychological trick to her. I went to her and told her, sorry, but I want to cancel our plans for the weekend. You should, you should have seen the face that she made. Apparently, girls hate being turned down way, way more than men do. She immediately asked me why. And I told her, because we changed the destination. And I said, but if you want to join us, you can. You can achieve a lot just by changing the wording you use with women. After I did that, she, she was definitely excited to come. Although, for some reason, she didn't come. I called her once, and she didn't call me back. And later, she apologized to me in school and swore to me that she sat at home waiting for me, but she didn't receive any call from me. Lying to me or not, I don't care. I was just angry and ignored her completely. I was just angry, and I ignored her completely ever since. Okay, let me chime in here. Okay, patron, let me get this straight. Again, I'm not going to pull any punches. <laughs> if you were a friend of mine, this is what I would tell you. So, you know, don't take offense to this, but let me, let me see if I can get this straight. First off, this is a massive request or a massive ask to ask uh, a woman that you're not dating yet if she wants to go on a weekend retreat or plan trip with you and your friends. That's a huge ask. If you were dating, you know, this is after 10 dates or something, it's, it's less of a, of a, of a ask, but to ask someone you're not dating to go on a weekend thing, you know, it's a, that's a big deal. So I just want to put that out there. But anyway, she said, yes, but to you, she seemed hesitant and you don't know why. So again, the narrative comes into play here. If you're determined to make every situation you live into a negative, destructive narrative, then you're going to put it into a narrative of she's being a bitch and she's being withholding and she's, you know, purposely denying you sex or something. And I kind of hear that in your language. I'm not, you're not saying that explicitly, but I kind of hear that. There are other there are a billion other possibilities as to why she would be hesitant when she said yes. I just want to point out, you asked her to go away for the weekend. She said yes, and she seemed hesitant. Now, she, might, she may or may not have been actually hesitant. Believe me, people can make mistakes about that sometimes. But let's just go with it and say she was indeed actually hesitant. Well, there's a lot of different possibilities. I can imagine she might have been worried that... Uh, things might get awkward. I mean, you're basically asking her on a first date that lasts an entire weekend. And everyone knows that first dates can be awkward and can go badly. And I'm guessing she was thinking, what if this goes badly and I'm stuck in this you know, other place with this guy and all of his friends and I can't get home? <laughs> I mean, you know, so is that. Or she might not have been sure that she liked you that much yet. She might have liked you enough to get a drink or go to coffee or something, but she might not have liked you enough to be sure that spending the weekend with you was really the thing to do. Or, which I honestly think is probably the most likely situation, given what I know about human beings, is she's, she's being shy. It, you know, if someone asks someone to do something like this, their first thought is, oh my God, 
what if I make a fool out of myself? He's asking me to hang out with all of his friends, some, you know, people that he's comfortable with. And I don't, I'm not comfortable and I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm afraid because I have a track record of making an idiot out of myself. And what if that happens and I make an idiot out of myself in front of this guy and all of his friends? I mean, that, I, I don't know about that. So now in your language, you, you're not, you're not thinking about those. And those are just three things off the top of my head. There's a billion other possibilities as to why a woman would be a little hesitant about saying yes to that. But I just want to point out, she said yes to you. Is the thing. She could have said no, but she said yes. So then instead of just, you know, proceeding, because you have this negative expectation in your head about being rejected, you decide you're going to play a trick on her by telling her that the trip was changed and that she's no longer invited, essentially. You're canceling it. You say, ah, it's canceled. And she says, oh, why is it canceled? And she says, well, we changed the venue. If someone told me that, I'd be like, oh, well, you clearly don't want me to go with you because if you just changed the venue you would have said, oh, by the way, we changed the venue, but I still really want you to come. You wouldn't say, oh, we canceled it. And then why? Well, because we changed the venue. And then, and then you said sort of, you know, I think you were trying to say it casually, ah, but if you still want to come, you can come. If I heard that from someone, I would assume you did not want me to come based on the way you told the story. Again, I wasn't there. It's, impossible. it's really hard to tell. But I would assume... Oh, he he doesn't like me and he doesn't he doesn't want me to come. He's not interested in me. So then she uh she didn't call you back and she didn't go on the trip. And now you feel angry and and now you're choosing to ignore her. You're actively ignoring her. And so now I'm paraphrasing everything you're saying in my own language. So I might have all of this wrong, but if I have this even, you know, 95% right, I just, I hope that my paraphrase back to you points out your cognitive distortions and how they are getting in the way because there's evidence, although I don't know, but there's evidence that you asked her on this huge trip and she likes you so much that she said yes to a weekend trip. And then you played a mean trick on her. And then she was hurt by that. And then she didn't know what to do. And so when you called her, she just didn't call you back. And, and now you're actively ignoring her. And she's walking around wondering what the hell happened. And she feels really hurt by you. When in the beginning, she was open to seeing if the two of you could be an item. Again, I could be, you know, I wasn't there and I'm just going off of your description and I'm reading a lot into it somewhat, but I, I just, I hope that you understand that at least my version of the story is a possibility that you are not considering. And I just want to point out that this is classic projective identification. We've talked about this before. It's classic. We all do it. I do it. Everyone uses projective identification as a defense against pain. So again, assuming 
that you've been uh, rejected or abandoned or you know hurt in some way as a child, which I have no indication of. But uh, and again, it's so cliche of a therapist to say this, but there's a lot of there's a lot of points of evidence pointing toward that possibility. It's it's like it's like if. I were to talk with someone and they talked about a lot of sexual promiscuity that they didn't actually want to get involved in a lot of sexual self-destruction, a lot of uh, being attracted to sexually exploitative people. I would say there's a good chance that you were sexually assaulted. You've, you've experienced sexual trauma as a child or earlier in your life. They're not telling me they've been sexually assaulted earlier in their life, but there's a lot of, pieces of classic evidence pointing at the possible of that possibility. And if that person had not been sexually traumatized early in life, I would really be surprised. Well, it's the same here. I would really be surprised if you, the patron who was emailing me had not been, uh, abandoned or rejected or neglected in some way, some significant way as a child. Also, I just want to tell all the listeners that I asked him if I could read this email on the podcast, and he said, yes, please go for it, because it might help other guys. So just want to put that out there. And I'm not going to say his name, and I'm going to, I've, I've left out identifying things or changed it. But anyway, so there's a lot of things pointing to the very real uh, likelihood that you've been abandoned, rejected, neglected emotionally, maybe you had cold parents or just, just some, just not enough love and attention and warmth uh, at critical moments in your life. So at some point you internalized this rejecting other person. So when it comes to internalization, according to my model, you internalize a, a version of the self your perception of the self and a perception of the other person and you internalize that relationship. So you internalize yourself as being rejected and you you internalize the other person as rejecting you. And in effect, if this happens repeatedly over time, which it likely did, you become the rejector. There's a part of you inside yourself that has motivations to reject other people because you've internalized your parent in all likelihood. But no one wants to think of themselves as a rejecting person. Because we're all inherently narcissistic, and particularly those who have been mistreated as children, we have a particular fragile ego, and so we're particularly narcissistic about ourselves. And so when we exhibit rejecting behaviors, we, we reframe them or distort them into some other reality so that we don't have to face the fact that we are just like our parents and we are we are being rejecting of other people and we're guilty of the same behavior that we hated when we were children. Most people are in a hundred percent denial of that. They're not aware of it. They exhibit and, and are behaviorally rejecting, but they would never see themselves as being rejecting. So also we tend to externalize this internal conflict because you've internalized that relationship between rejecting and rejected, it's easier for the psyche and the mind to make that external. It's, it's rather than having it rattle around in our brain. And so what you do is you find situations that you can recreate the rejecting relationship happen again. All the while, you're enacting your denied, rejecting part of yourself. 
but all the while you're blaming it on the other person. So let me just apply it to the situation that, that you presented in, in your email. And again, I say this with love, patron. I'm not trying to shame you. Everyone does this. And I really, really hope that this helps. So again, because of your traumas regarding abandonment, rejection, neglect, you are walking around in the world struggling with this internal, unconscious, denied uh, internal representation, relationship representation. So you find someone, uh, a woman, to ask out on a date. And instead of asking her out on a small date that she's more likely to say yes to, you ask her to go on a weekend-long date, essentially, which is, has a high likelihood of her rejecting you. Now, your unconscious is just saying, ah, oh, just ask her on a date, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what your subconscious is saying is if you ask her out on this humongous date, she's likely to reject you, or there's likely going to be an aspect of rejection eventually, and this will allow you to project your rejecting self onto her while you reject her in the process, but deny the fact that you're rejecting her and by blaming the rejection aspect on the other person. So you ask her out on the date for the weekend, she, but, but she surprises you and she actually says yes, but she's a little hesitant because she's a normal human being <laughs> and it's a weekend long date. So then your, your insides are still struggling. You're like, wait a second. She said, yes. Well, I need, this is all your, this is all unconscious. You're saying, I need this to turn into a rejecting scenario. How can I make this uh, into a rejecting scenario because it's, it looks like she's actually going to come and she's going to accept me. And that will not be a recreation of the past. That will actually be the opposite. And I can't have that. I need to recreate the past and we recreate the past. It's, you know, the repetition compulsion as Freud put it for a number of reasons that I won't go into right now. Just listen to the other podcast on protective identification, but she says, yes, then you proceed to start to, in your mind, assume that she really meant no, which I just really want to point this out, that even though she said yes, you were convinced that she really wanted to say no. That's important. And you also assumed that any hesitation she had was an indication that she really wanted to say no and not just shyness or hesitation that anyone would have in a situation like that. You're just like, oh, she, clearly she didn't really want to go. Okay. Because again, in your mind, you have a template that everyone is going to reject you. So then you play a mean trick on her by re basically rejecting her by saying, well, we canceled the thing. She says, oh, no, why? And, and you say, well, we changed the venue. We're all going to this other venue, you know, and so we canceled it for you only. <laughs> but if you want to come, go ahead and come. So in this instance, you're actually rejecting her. You are the rejector. You are the one enacting the rejection element of that relationship that you internalized all those years before. This in turn causes her to reject you because if you're giving the impression you don't want her to be there, or at the very least you're playing some weird game with her, she is likely going to shy away from that. And that's what she did. So, so in the end, you, compl you completed the circle by ha making her reject you, and then you walk away being able to deny the rejecting element in yourself and saying, it's someone else that was being rejecting, not me. 
that woman is me rejecting. In fact, all women are rejecting of me. I am not the rejecter. It's them. It's not me. When in fact, my friend, you are the rejecter. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not your fault. It's because you were relationally traumatized as a child in all likelihood, I'm guessing. It 100% of the time, that's what it is, by the way. People do not want to reject others. There's, no, you, there's nothing to be gained from rejecting other people. We all want attachments, as you have said earlier. So why would we reject others? Well, the only reason why we do that is if we have some sort of internal conflict. And the only reason why we'd have an internal conflict is if someone put us through those uh, experiences that gave us that issue in the first place. So I have absolute sympathy and empathy for you, patron, but um, I, I hope that you can see that. Now, if you were sitting here in front of me, you, you might be going, well, but you know, you're not really seeing this, you know, and I didn't really explain myself the email and, you know, Kirk, you're seeing it totally wrong. Uh, and so it throws off your entire analysis of the situation. So, and, and I might say, okay, you know, you're right. I, I, you know, by your email, I I'm completely off base. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm working with what I have here in the email, but if there's any possibility of this being true, I would really contemplate it because I think it is the core, one of the cores of your issues here. If you can heal that relational trauma that you've had somehow, either through therapy or going back to the source of the pain and recorrecting those issues um, at, at the guidance of a therapist, then you will in all likelihood, stop needing to defend against this internal difficulty by using protective identification, which essentially leads to weird behavior from you that essentially causes other people to reject you. Again, we all do this. I do this. I, when I was in therapy your age, I discovered my own protective identifications and took me years to attenuate kind of. So... There is nothing different about you. This is just your particular issue that's particular to you. Other people have their own particular issues. Okay. So let's get back to your email. Let's go back to how my friend explained to me that being a nice guy with girls doesn't work very well. He advised me that I should be playful with them and I should tease them, meaning that instead of approaching the girl with, hi, how are you? I should go to her and throw a funny comment about her in a friendly way so we could both laugh together, which I started doing now because it worked better than being too nice. His idea was that in order for sexual attraction to happen between a man and a woman, a man needs to show the girl that he is not necessarily impressed by her. Because if you let the girl know for sure that you really like her, she immediately loses interest in you. Perhaps she turns into a defensive mode if she knows you're interested. Or maybe showing too much interest makes her think that she is out of your league. Or perhaps the simplest explanation is that women are constantly given attention and admiration by other men. So by, talking a different, by, by taking a different approach with them makes you stand out to the girls over most other men. Honestly, this works amazingly well if you want to make a good first impression. Also, I got advice from two different adult women when I came here to the United States. One is 35 and the other is 57. 
and both of them admitted that I shouldn't let the girls know that I want to have sex with them, because if they realize that I want to have sex with them, they will never give it to you, in all caps. Okay, I'll chime in here. So again, as I said before, whoa, 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 hold your horses. <laughs> you said some, you said the interesting thing there at the end. They will never give it to you. You, you need a, a patron. I'm going to be very straight with you. You need a, a serious primer on the ways in which you're being socialized regarding sex and gender. Women don't give sex to you. And you don't need to trick them to have sex with you. Sex is a mutually satisfying activity, usually between two people who like each other. It's just that simple. Women want sex, just like men want sex. And if women are picking up on your attitude that they need to give you sex, then I'm guessing this turns them off. Yes. So uh, uh, you're saying some classic sexist statements. And uh, I'm guessing that a part of your recovery from not only being rejected as a child, but also from the destructive gender socialization that all of us go through involves you realizing what attitudes you have let infiltrate your mind that are destructive regarding gender and lead to you being further rejected by people. So when you say they will never give it to you, if you let them think that you want to have sex with them, it, you're going to hear a lot of other guys talk like that. But I'm telling you, it's a very destructive gender socialization. And I'm not just saying that as a therapist, I'm saying that as a dude, I'm a dude who grew up, in an extremely masculine, you know, culture, I swallowed all the pills that I was given regarding masculinity as a, as a child. And as a young adult, I was captain of the football team. I was captain of the wrestling team. I, uh, got in fights. I, I, you know, I, I was masculine <laughs> or I don't know, maybe I still am, but the point is, is that I get it. And I've been down that road, and as a 45-year-old man, I've realized the bullshit that we go through as men regarding masculinity, and one of the things, one of the bullshit things is the message that we get told that women are, that we're supposed to conquer women, and that that is the definition of, of masculinity. That's, that's how you become uh, an awesome dude. Yeah, a respectable dude is a guy who bags a lot of babes and who, who manages to get women to have sex with him. This is a ridiculous, destructive, horrible, ultimately not helpful to yourself notion that I cannot emphasize enough. Okay. But patron, you said some wise things here in this passage. When you were brainstorming why it works to not let on that you're super interested in them, I'm, I'm sure you got this sort of stuff from the pickup artist community, you know, to neg someone. I don't, I don't know if, if, if you got, you know, the whole negging thing, you're supposed to walk. And there's all these classic examples in comedies and stuff, but the, the new Jim Jeffries TV show, I can't, what's it called? Jim Jeffries has this TV show on, on Netflix and, uh, 
and it's on FX actually, but now it's on Netflix. It's pretty funny actually. It's pretty crass, but <laughs> but they have this whole thing about negging. You know, you're supposed to walk up to a woman, and you're supposed to, you know, be nice, but you're supposed to point out something bad about them. You know, and you're supposed to act like you don't care. You're supposed to act like a ladies' man essentially. And I've been involved with all this before. I've been heavily involved with clients and other people regarding negging and the pickup artist community. And in a nutshell, what I'll say about negging and the pickup artist community is there's actually some good things about all that. And there's some very bad things about it. It's, it's actually a pretty complicated culture, but, but anyway, I'm, I'm here to tell you, and I hadn't really thought about it. I hadn't really realized it until thinking about your email it's not negging a woman that works. It, it's not that it, it, it's what works is that by negging, you're essentially interrupting your normal process of coming on super strong. So when you take, when you take a group of guys who are having a hard time meeting women and they're being socialized that they, they must have sex with women a lot, then basically it, and then you pump them full of alcohol and caffeine or something and cocaine in some instances, and you, you put them in a meat market, then they're all pumped up and they're ready to go. And they've been waiting all week for this moment. And they find a, a woman and they walk up to her and all this energy just comes pouring out. And, and you women out there that are listening, you've met these guys, you know, they just, they just come on super strong and they might even be attractive, nice, funny guys, but they're coming on real strong. And it's a massive turn turnoff. No one likes that. Men or women, no one likes someone coming on super strong. And so, and then these men go home lonely and they're thinking, man, this doesn't work. What's wrong? And then the pickup artist community comes along and they say, hey, this negging thing works. Well, the, the negging thing, meaning you walk up to a woman and instead of coming on super strong, you point out something negative about her. Like, oh, you know, you're really pretty, but you know, your hair, it looks kind of dry. <laughs> Or, you know, man, I really like your outfit, but those shoes, I don't know about those shoes. And I'm not even joking. Those are actually two classic negging uh, scenarios. Um, it's not that the negging works. What is working is this negging behavior is actually interrupting your super intense come on uh, attitude and demeanor towards the women. And so they're naturally a little bit more receptive to you. So it's not that walking up to women and, and making fun of them in some ways helps. It's that you just have to tone it down. You just have to slow down and not be so desperate. You have to take it easy. And it's not that women are looking for a man who doesn't want them. I mean, to tell you the truth, there is a little bit of, of a game that you have to play in terms of uh, having a little bit of mystery, you know, just walking up to someone and saying, Oh my God, I love you. And I want to have your babies is, you know, there's not a lot of mystery there. People like a lot of people like a lot of mystery. Now, having said that some people don't want any mystery and that's what they want to hear. They want the forward. So there's, there's a lot of lids and a lot of pots, if you know what I'm saying. So the, the real advice that people should be saying is if you're coming on super strong, figure out a way to tone it down. Plus you don't want to come on super strong because you don't know if this person is good for you. You don't know if this person 
one, you don't even, you don't know this person's going to be a good sexual partner. So let's just put that out there because sexual compatibility is actually quite uh, rare. So even if you are just looking for a one night stand, believe me, you, you know, barking up every single tree you come across or every attractive tree you come across is not necessarily a good thing. But even more importantly, the, the chance that this person is a good match for you is actually pretty slim. So why would you come on super strong as if you really want something when you're really not sure if you want it or not? And that's really the whole point is like when you walk up to someone, you want to come across like you have standards and that, that you're approaching them with a question mark. Like, well, I, you seem attractive. I'd like to get to know you a little better. And, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, we'll see if we're a good match. Now you're not going to say that out loud because that's stupid, but, but that's the attitude that you have. And that's the attitude that typically works because the person that you're coming up to will have a similar attitude. They'll have a similar rational attitude of just like, okay, well, I like what I see so far, but you know, I wonder, I wonder what more I'm going to learn about this person. And the vast majority of those situations end fairly quickly because people realize that they're not a good match. And so to me, it's like, why would you come on super strong with something that you're in all likelihood, not going to like in the end anyway. So, so really what you want to do is, is, is sort of just tone it down. Anyway. Okay. Back to your email. Basically the best advice I've received about how to flirt and date women are the ones that teach you how to manipulate girls, like making her think that you have plenty of other girls or not letting her know for sure if you're interested in her, or not letting her take you for granted. All other advice that tells you that you should just be yourself, or that you should be honest with a girl about what you want, these don't work as well. How can you tell an inexperienced guy that he should just be himself? Isn't it better to teach him dating skills, just like we learned social skills, slowly while we were growing up? Seriously, I would love if I could walk out to a girl and just tell her that I want to have sex with her because I think that her body is attractive. I just want to read this sentence again. Seriously, I would love it if I could walk out to the girl, walk up to the girl and just tell her that I want to have sex with her because I think that her body is attractive. Okay, whoa, 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 again, if you're my friend this is what I would say to you. I think you've fallen for the classic deception of masculinity. That if you have sex with random women, that you will, that this will make you a man and that this will make you happy. This is a lie. This is a deception. You've been bamboozled, my friend, just as we all have, but as someone on the other side uh, of the fence and having seen the light, believe me, it's a deception. And I've argued with many men about this. Having, having a bunch of random sex will not solve your problems. There might be some nice moments, but it's not going to solve your problems. You, you might feel a little better about yourself as a sexual creature, but it will not give you what you're looking for. You're looking for what all men are looking for and all women are looking for. You're looking for a secure attachment, someone you can trust, someone you can share your life with. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about marriage, by the way. Maybe your optimal life is serial monogamy, or maybe it's maybe your optimal life is polyamory. Either way, it's about secure attachment. And believe me, sex is just sex. 
but attachment is a basic human need. We all need someone there for us. Sex is important. Sex is important, but it's frankly a small part of the overall picture. And, and also, I, I just want to point out that, again, you're, you're, you're actually quite young. Like I said, I used to think 24 was quite old. 24 is actually quite young. And I've talked with, with hundreds of men in your shoes, and I'm telling you, dating while you're young is really tough. Everyone is simultaneously wanting attachment, naturally, and yet they think they're too young for attachment, so they avoid attachment. And frankly, young people in general, not all of them, are just generally immature and not mature enough for romantic relationships or not mature enough for uh, satisfactory romantic relationships. So, you know, now, you know, some young people definitely are mature enough, but, but most of them are not. Not that they're bad people, but you just have to live some life. You have to go around the block a few times before you know who you are as a human being and what you want and before you have enough empathy for other people. I mean, empathy is a part of maturity and not everyone has it. So getting back to your email. But the problem is men need to lose their virginity as early as possible. The pressure you receive from both the culture and from your body is just too great to ignore. Therefore, men need to learn methods that work with younger girls. They can't wait until they are in their 30s when they can actually be just honest and straightforward with women. If men don't get a girlfriend by the time they're in college, or at least lose their virginity, they will lose face a lot of inner struggle. They will face, sorry, they will face a lot of inner struggle. They will feel embarrassed and ashamed. They will feel that they are lesser than other men. And more importantly, all of this self-loathing might turn into hating women and being violent with them. And a lot of famous serial killers faced that fate. So I'll just chime in here. As I said before, whoa, whoa, whoa. The more I read your email, the more I think you need to be talking with a therapist. Perhaps you are. Hopefully you are. Because you're heading into some seriously dangerous areas here. You're talking about being violent with women. You seem to be making a case that justifies violence towards other human beings. You have said nothing to me that justifies even a thought of violence towards people. To be rejected, that hurts. It hurts your feelings. We've all been there. I've been there. But to convert that into, I am going to take violent revenge against women in general. Yes, we have seen that in serial killers. But this is not natural. It's not healthy. It's not acceptable, <laughs> and it's an indication that something has gone seriously wrong. Now, I'm not going to say you, there's something wrong with you. What I'm going to say is there's something wrong with the experiences you went through as a child. Maybe you had violence upon you in a revenge fashion. I don't know. And there's also something wrong with masculinity, which I'll get into. Again, I get that you're lonely and you're sexually frustrated. I get that. But there's a way out of this. And many people, including a lot of therapists, will have terrible advice about how to get out of it. You know, like people saying, just be yourself. 
But I'm telling you, don't give up so easily. If every 24-year-old who was lonely turned to violence when they were, you know, rejected, we'd all be dead by now. So I'm telling you, you're in the majority of not only men, but women. Uh, so there's nothing different about you. There's nothing wrong with you. And I think, I think there's a part of you that knows that. Okay. You know, since you're, you're taking it to this, you know, so you said, and more importantly, all the self-loathing might turn into hating women and being violent with them. When you say this, I, I don't, it, it just triggers me to self-disclose. So I don't normally do this, but I'm going to tell you about my own dating life, sort of. When I was your age, I remember having similar struggles. And, and I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. So I, I was born and raised and dating within my own culture. So even then, it was, it was tough. And this was dating during the 80s and early 90s when everyone was terrified of AIDS. So it was a particular difficult time. And we didn't have the internet, you know, to help us date. So, you know, it was hard. But I always had my friends to help me. We all faced the same struggle together. And we went through this together. And I remember thinking that. I remember thinking like, wow, this is what they call about like that foxhole friendship, you know, in the war when you're in a foxhole, you become good friends with someone. Well, I remember feeling that way in high school and in college and beyond. I remember feeling like this if I didn't have my group of friends <laughs> to, uh, if we didn't have each other through the struggles of dating and sexuality and gender and all this stuff, I, that's not how I framed it at the time. But looking back, if I didn't have those guys, I would be lost and I might be thinking about violence too. So I just really want to point that out. And I'm still friends with all these guys and women have the same thing. Women, uh, or whoever you, whatever you just have friends, whether it's women or men or queer people, you, you have friends that you go through, uh, your difficult times together, whether that's dating or otherwise. And so I really want to point that out that for me, I, my friends were a big deal. And for, for, for you, uh, I just want to say patron that some of these friends could be men. Some of them could be women. You said you talked to some older women about, sexuality and dating and stuff. You know, these could be friends. For me, I had Lita. Uh, Lita was one of the original co-hosts of Psychology in Seattle. We were best friends through high school and in college. And she was, you know, my platonic girl best friend. And, and she was extremely important to me. So to go on with my story, it's a difficult time in the 80s, early 90s. Is a struggle, but I had my friends. But eventually, I was able to figure out how to meet people and how to date. But I'm here to tell you, as someone who's on who experienced that, that did not end my struggles. That just introduced a whole new set of problems, <laughs> like like breakups and guilt and infidelity and boredom and just all these other horrible things. And and then once I met someone compatible with me, which took Years and years and years, by the way, that also didn't end the struggle. Relationships take a lot of work, just like dating takes a lot of work, just like figuring out how you're going to get the self-esteem to date takes a lot of work. So there's no oasis ahead of you. It's not like once you figure out how to date women or how to have sex with women that, you know, all your problems are going to go away and that there's this grand oasis over there. I'm telling you, it's not. Each step of the way, there are pros and cons. 
there are struggles inherent in each situation. And frankly, there'd be, there's a lot of dudes who, who envy you because you're single and you don't have the constraints of being in a relationship. And I also will predict that, you know, once you figure all this out and you manage to find someone who's compatible and is a companion for you, you're going to look back at your life when you were 24 and you're going to miss that life. You're going to miss certain things about your life back to, you know, to your time now. So I just want you to keep all that in mind. Cause again, it all depends on your narrative. If you, if in your narrative, you're like, Oh, those pesky women are keeping me from my perfect life. You know, it's going to compel you to be violent towards them because they're treating you unfairly. But I'm telling you that's a distortion. Again, I say this to you as a friend. Okay. I'm not ridiculing you. I hope you get that uh, vibe from me. I desperately hope that you get the vibe that I'm, I'm trying to be helpful in a friendly way. Okay. But yes, getting back to other things you're saying, virginity is a big deal in our culture, particularly for men. In our society, if you're a virgin, there's something deeply wrong with you, right? Now, I can't tell from your email if you're saying you're a virgin. It sounds like you are. So if so, I want to focus on that. I would focus not on your virginity, but I would focus on meeting another human being who you like to hang out with. And if the two of you happen to have sex, then that's all the better. But if you focus solely on losing your virginity, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to come come across like a strange person. And like you realized earlier, when women sense that you're desperate, they get turned off just like men get turned off by women who are desperate. So just focus on finding someone who fits with your personality, someone you like to go to a movie with someone you could talk with for a couple hours, someone you could go for a walk with. Focus on that. And if you find a good match like that, there is a very good chance that she will, she will be so desperate to jump your bones that you won't be able to stop the sex once it begins. And I just, I want to repeat this, okay? If you find a companion, a companion, and this goes for men and women, it's the same deal. If you find a companion who you like and who likes you, who you like to spend time with, who you respect, a person respects you, you like to talk, you like to hang out, you have a good laugh together. If you find someone like that, I am 99.9% sure she will, she will make you have sex with her. You won't have to ask for it. You won't have to be begging. (laughs) It will just happen because there is no better aphrodisiac for men and women than secure attachment with someone you're attracted to. So don't focus on your virginity. That, that is, um, I, I understand the stigma around virginity, but you, you have to reject that bullshit in the same way that you know that it's bullshit that our society says that men don't have feelings and men should be strong and men sh- and all men should be able to bag all the babes in the planet. You know, that's bullshit. Well, it's similar bullshit that virginity is some kind of mental illness or some kind of indication of, of, uh, of lacking masculinity or something. Virginity is just virginity. You just haven't had sex with. You haven't had sex yet. Big fucking deal. Believe me. Once you start having sex, you're gonna you're gonna say like, oh, I sex. You know, sex is great, but it 
you know, it's not that big of a deal. If, if I'm, you know, and I meet some people like this sometimes, you know, they're 50 years old and they've never had sex. It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a portion of the pie of the human experience, but it's not the only thing in life. <laughs> so, you know, just, you know, reject that stigma about virginity. Now, are other people going to stigmatize you? Yes, because our society is fucked. But you got to put that in its place. You know, you can't, don't, don't believe the hype, my friend. Um, because, mostly because the more you focus on your virginity, I think the more disservice you do to yourself because you come across like you're so fucking desperate <laughs> that women are like, oh my God, you know, he's, he's so desperate. So, you know, you don't want to come across like that. You want to meet someone. Go on a couple dates, you know, see if you like each other, see if you have a good conversation. From your email, there are moments in your email that, you know, I, I see clear evidence that, that you're a nice guy who has a good conversation. You're articulate, you can talk about things. You know, I, I'm thinking you're actually communicating in English, which I'm assuming is not your native language, which I have to say indicates you're extremely smart. So anyway, getting back to your email. So what did I do eventually? I didn't manage to find a girl that I like yet. Most humans around my age are too shallow and ignorant of their unconscious for my own liking. But I did manage to lose my virginity. I used an easy way to settle this because enough is enough. I had sex with a prostitute. Did I like it? Absolutely not. It was horrible. No intimacy whatsoever and no real connection between the two of us. But I would rather have sex with a prostitute instead of having to deal with this game between men and women. I am not a toy for girls that they can enjoy for a few conversations or a few dates just to turn me down whenever they feel like it. Honestly, girls take our interest in them for granted. And that's why my friends and I think we should start a movement against them. We will call it let it dry out movement. Let it dry out movement. Let it dry out movement. Maybe then young girls will realize that they need sex as much as men do. Until then, all hail masturbation. Okay, just chiming in here. When I read your email, I get the sense that you're a really nice, sweet guy, just like any other guy, and you happen to be very, very lonely, and you want a woman to fall in love with. And you're super focused on the deception of the masculine ideal, like I said before, which is to have sex with young, attractive women. It's all been a lie. When you describe your experience with the sex worker, I can clearly and totally and comprehensively hear that what you really want is intimacy. You even said, you know, there's, there was no intimacy you want true intimacy with someone. You wrote, no intimacy whatsoever and no real connection between the two of us. I hope you can see the lies now, you, that you can see the lies that sex will not bring you happiness and that the masculine ideal of having sex with someone is not the road to well-being. You know, that experience with the sex worker gave you an excellent opportunity to see the truth. It's not about sex. You had sex and it didn't make you feel better. So it's not about sex. But that's what society is trying to tell you. Sex will make you happy. But sex did not make you happy. In fact, it made you feel worse. 
So now you can learn something helpful, helpful from this, or you can turn it into a destructive force in your life. For instance, you can, you can decide to reject all women to gather your friends together and say, we're going to try the let it dry out movement. Now, I'll say as a caveat, there's nothing wrong with deciding in your life to say, you know, fuck it. I don't want to, I don't want romance in my life. I'm just going to have my platonic friends, you know, sex and romance is too complicated, too hurtful. I can't deal with it right now. There, there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. To turn that into an us versus them thing, that's kind of weird. And it's not ultimately helpful to you. There are plenty of people I've talked with that have said, you know what, given my life circumstances right now, I can't deal with romance and dating. It's just not, I'm just not ready for it yet. A lot of people make that choice. Nothing wrong with that. There is something destructive about saying it's all women's fault and they're all out to get us and they all know we want to have sex with them and they're all denying us that sex because they go home and laugh at us when they're at home. So this brings up an, another another sort of thing that I think I see evidence of. Not as much evidence of the childhood rejection, but there's some evidence of some mild narcissism in you. Again, I say this as a friend. Uh, Umberto and I both admit we both have some narcissistic traits. I mean, being a podcaster is a massively narcissistic endeavor. I mean, to think that I could just talk into a microphone and and a bunch of people would listen to it is just like, you know, that's super narcissistic. To wake up in the morning and say, I want to blab in the microphone for hours. And I'm going to make a bunch of other people listen. That's narcissistic. But I know it about myself. And so I, and I have known it for years of being in therapy. And so, you know, I try to manage that. And I try to heal from the wounds I've experienced that have made me need attention in order to, or superiority or whatever, in order to function in life. So there's some evidence that you, my friend, patron, also have a similar issue that me and Umberto do. In that be it, when you have a theme of humiliation, that is often an indication of narcissism. Let me explain. So when you're a child, you need to feel like you're the center of the world. And you need your parents to make you the center of the world. And that's just developmentally what all children need. They need to believe they're the best at everything. They need to be, they need to believe that they're the most loved, the most special child. It's just, they're black and white thinkers and that's what they need. And if you give them that, then they grow out of that narcissism and they become more realistic about their place in the universe, particularly as they get older, as we all get older. Now, if you don't make children feel special by, um, you know, giving them the attention or uh, admiration, or if you criticize them a lot and make them feel very unspecial, then that causes a narcissistic injury and children, these children will grow up to be adults to have this, this narcissistic is issue. And so what the way that they cope with it is because of this pain inside of them that they feel worthless to some extent. They try to overcompensate by creating a version of the self that is perfect and awesome, particularly in the, in the view of other people. And one of the things you can turn to is masculinity. I can be the most masculine, awesome man on the planet. And how do I do that? Well, I bag a lot of babes. And if that doesn't happen, then it feels humiliating. And there's a lot of 
tone of humiliation in your email. Like you feel humiliated by women. Now, there's nothing strange about feeling humiliation, about feeling humiliated. There is something uh, narcissistic about taking that humiliation to the next level and saying, how dare those women treat me that way? I will get back at them with a movement and I have thoughts of revenge violence against them. them. You didn't say that directly, but you were saying that indirectly. What that indicates is narcissism. And what I'm going to tell you is that the road to wellness lies in healing that wound of narcissism that you experience as a child. The road to wellness does not involve telling yourself you're not superior and by telling yourself that you need to not be humiliated because that's just not going to work. And that's commonly what people will say to people with narcissistic traits is they'll just say, stop being a narcissist. But that does nothing to help someone. Just like saying, just be yourself. That doesn't help you. What, what helps you is, you know, perhaps months and years of going back to those initial times that you were narcissistically injured and having someone take care of you. Now that can be a therapist. It could be a friend. It could be your parents. It could be, you know, someone else, but someone who takes care of you and makes you feel special, makes you feel like you're a worthy human being, makes you feel like the special person that you are. If you can have that, then you can internally feel special and feel good enough on the inside so that you don't need to exhibit the narcissism outwardly, one. And two, when you are humiliated by other people, it doesn't hurt as much. Because if we have a humiliation wound from it, from our childhood, when we are humiliated as adults, it feels particularly bad. And I'm not talking just like, oh, I'm, I feel bad. I'm talking like complete disruption of one's personality. Complete uh, stepping off into the abyss of one's, of one's selfhood. It can be extremely destabilizing to be humiliated. And if you were narcissistically wounded as a child. And so I just want to point out that there's a, there's some evidence of that, not as much evidence that you were neglected as a child and rejected or something along those lines, but there, there's some evidence of a narcissistic wound of some sort. Again, I tell you this as a friend, I tell you this as um, someone that I care about and someone that I want to pull away from the edge of the cliff and into a road of wellness. Okay. So again, getting back to your experience with a sex worker, you know, it's, it's such a great demonstration that you were chasing a delusion and that you need to chase what you really need rather than chasing what society is telling you what to chase. You know, you're, you're chasing sex, you're chasing sex, you're chasing young sex with young people. And then you finally have sex and it makes you even feel even worse. You know, it's, it's like you haven't drank water in weeks and you're desperate for water. You're desperately thirsty. And society is telling you that you need a better pair of shoes. So you go on this hyper-focused quest for better footwear. Now, a good pair of shoes is good. But water is more essential to our mental well-being, right? So until you get your attachment needs met, you'll never be happy, regardless of how much sex you have. And I hope that this experience with the sex worker demonstrated that. Okay, getting back to your email. 
Anyway, that's basically how I stand right now in this subject. Trust me, it's painful just to wake up in the morning and force yourself to keep living, especially when you feel denied the most basic thing every human needs, like acceptance and love. I've been wanting to have a girlfriend since I was 13. I'm 24, and I couldn't fully fulfill that. And I know a lot of men are facing a similar problem. Darkness and despair grow more inside of me every day, and fear creeps turning quickly into anger. I am at the point where my anger towards girls has turned into hatred. And so I'm afraid my anger will prevent me from even finding someone to love. I'm sure other men face the same problem. The sad part is that this issue is never publicly addressed. If I complain to a large group of people that most, that most men and women have problems mating with each other, the group will laugh at me. The group will say that anyone who can't find a woman needs to man up and stop complaining. I mean, look at us. We're having sex with a bunch of people. What's wrong with you that you can't? Interestingly enough, I've read a study that says that over 60% of college students admitted the last time they had sex was over 12 months ago, even though everyone on TV seems to have no problem with having sex. I really can't wait to hear your take on this. Again, thank you very much for reading this email until the end of it. You can mention all the details as long as you don't mention my name. Okay. Well, you're welcome for reading it. Uh, and thank you, Patreon, for allowing me to talk about it on the podcast because I guarantee you there are other people in your shoes that want to hear me talk about this. So, in conclusion, yes, everyone likes to talk about how easy it is for them, including people in the pickup artist community, by the way. Everyone likes to talk about how easy it is for them to have sex with people. But as a therapist who hears everyone's secret problems, I'm here to tell you that everyone struggles with sex and romance. Even the super hot people. Believe me, everyone struggles with sex and everyone struggles with romance. It's, it's really not easy for anyone. Also, if you're not already, in conclusion, I just want to tell you, you really should go to therapy. And find a good therapist that understands this issue. It might take a while to find someone who really gets it, but you've said a number of things that indicate that you're really struggling with this. And I'm, I'm guessing you suffered, like I said, from a childhood rejection or some sort of turmoil or, or neglect. And you deserve to heal from that. And there's some minor evidence of a narcissistic injury, and you deserve to heal from that too. So seek healing from the real traumas that you've been through. And you might be looking around at your friends and going, well, we're, we're all feeling this way. Well, I'm here to tell you, patron, that all your friends might have been through traumas similar to yours. And you all deserve to heal from your traumas. I'm telling you from personal experience that when you heal from these traumas, things get better. Also, focus on attachment. Stop focusing on sex. The sex that you want to have will arrive naturally once you get your priorities straight. Also, find attachment where you can with your friends and family. I'm sure that if you found secure attachments with people in general, your energy regarding sex would diminish somewhat. But most of all, 
Don't convert your loneliness and confusion into anger and hatred and violence. I know that I know that this is just another masculine deception that anger will give us power and that anger will protect us and that violence will feel good to us. This is another masculine lie. But this will only make you more miserable, guaranteed. So remain open. Heal from your relational trauma. Heal from your gender trauma. You've been traumatized. I've been traumatized by gender. Everyone's been traumatized by gender messages in our society. So keep the faith. I can tell that you're a sensitive, nice person who wants to share love with other people. You want a companion. And you're going to make someone very happy one day. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be work to get there. Once you're there, it's going to be work. But you're going to make someone happy someday. You might have a number of different girlfriends and wives that you make happy (laughs) as companions. But you have to heal from your traumas and you have to heal from the damage of masculinity. And I, you know, and I can tell you've already shed some of the deception of masculinity because you've reached out for me for help. You, you already know how to reject the lies of masculinity because a super masculine man wouldn't email me this vulnerable question. He would say, I can do this on my own. You're already breaking down the barriers. You just have to keep going down that road. Don't turn around toward the ledge into uh, hyper-masculinity by being hateful and isolating. There's nothing but pain and loneliness down there. The road to happiness is in openness. It's in attachment to the people that you can trust. It's in reaching out. It's in love and compassion and self-compassion and exploration and healing from the traumas of your past and from the gender traumas. This is where happiness lies. It is not easy, my friend. It is a long road that has difficulties. But the road you're compl- the, the road you're at a Y in the road. And the ma- hypermasculine hateful, angry road is a dark road, a very dark road, my friend. So come with me and let's go down the other way. Let's do it. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself. Everybody, please take care of yourself and other people because we all deserve it. (laughs) 